Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Frida Kahlo. let's continue with part two of our story about Frida Kahlo. On January 9, 1937, the Norwegian oil tanker carrying the Trotsky family arrived in Tampico Harbor. Aware that Stalin had purged and executed many of Trotsky's former political associates, both he and his wife were wary of leaving the ship and initially refused to go ashore until they were able to meet with those they knew to be supporters. Eventually, a small boat provided by the Mexican government approached, and clearly visible were sympathetic and familiar American Trotskyites, journalists, government officials, and Frida Kahlo. Unfortunately, Diego Rivera, perhaps the man most responsible for obtaining Trotsky's access to Mexico, was hospitalized with eye and kidney issues and was unable to witness this dramatic moment. As Trotsky and his wife walked down the gangplank of the pier, Frida Kahlo was right behind them. Although he was in Mexico, Leon Trotsky had no illusions about the danger surrounding him and his family. The Mexican government provided a special train that left with the entourage at night, conveying the party to a secret stop on the outskirts of Mexico City. Frida's father and sister vacated La Casa Azul to allow the Trotskys to live there. Diego Rivera coordinated security with both servants and the police to protect the exiled communist, and because neither Trotsky or his wife spoke Spanish, Frida Kahlo would serve as an aide and advisor. Not intimidated by Stalin's ferocious attitude, Trotsky immediately continued his political activity, criticizing his guilty in absentia verdict during recent Stalinist show trials and demanding the formation of an international commission to rebut the evidence presented. This six-man commission, headed by American educator John Dewey, would convene in the Casa Azul on April 10, 1937. The entire session witnessed by both Frida and Diego Rivera. Ultimately, Trotsky dazzled this commission with his rhetorical skill, and when testimony was conducted, he was officially vindicated in a 400-page document that summarized the Dewey Commission findings. Trotsky's speeches were forwarded to New York and read publicly at venues attended by American communists. In the Kremlin, Joseph Stalin must have realized that his political foe would require a much more emphatic response. Initially, Trotsky and Rivera grew quite close. Rivera, the only individual that did not require an appointment and the only person that Trotsky would interact with alone. Frida and Diego would frequently dine with the Trotskys and take day trips into the mountains near Taxco. And the inevitable happened. Frida was greatly attracted to Trotsky from the outset and began a seduction that probably did not require a great deal of effort. Trotsky's wife, Natalia, was 55 and quite frumpy, especially when compared to the exotic, sensuous 29-year-old Frida. Frida and Trotsky would meet at her sister Christina's home for what ultimately became a passionate but brief affair. Although Diego Rivera was not aware of this development, Trotsky's wife certainly was. 
frequently being left behind while her spouse pursued the much younger woman. By July 1937, Frida decided to break things off, despite a lengthy letter from Trotsky begging her not to do so. Frida was unmoved, telling a friend that she was tired of El Viejo, the old man. Still on the anniversary of the Russian Revolution, she would paint a self-portrait dedicated to, quote, Leon Trotsky, with all my love, 7th of November, 1937, unquote. After the drama of the affair with Trotsky concluded, Frida settled down to one of the more artistically productive periods of her life. A small exhibition in a Mexico City gallery would lead to her first American exhibition at the Julian Levy Gallery in New York. Frida would also record the first sales of her work to the film star Edward G. Robinson in mid-1938. Robinson initially came to see Rivera's work and ultimately paid $200 apiece for four of Frida's paintings, which Rivera surreptitiously showed him while Frida was entertaining Robinson's wife elsewhere. This was an unfortunate aspect of Frida's approach to her art. She never pushed for shows, exhibits, or sales, perhaps not wanting to diminish her husband, or perhaps not having the self-confidence to aggressively market her work. In October 1938, Frida went to New York to be present at the opening of her gallery exhibition. Rivera helped put together a guest list that included both Mr. and Mrs. Nelson and John D. Rockefeller, clearly an indication that neither artist held a grudge. This exhibition would be Frida's official artistic coming-out party, a statement that she was an artist in her own right and not just Diego Rivera's wife. André Breton, the French critic and surrealist, described her work as a ribbon around a bomb, a phrase that would be repeated in Time magazine's article about the exhibition. Frida also sold about half of the paintings that were exhibited, an impressive result. Wherever she went in the city, she caused a sensation with her vibrant Mexican couture. She also used her absence from Rivera's immediate presence to pursue several relationships with various men. From New York, Frida would also preside over another exhibit in Paris, although she found the experience relatively unpleasant by comparison. However, she would participate in an exhibition that brought her attention from curators at the Louvre, who would purchase and display a colorful self-portrait, making Frida Kahlo the first Mexican artist to achieve such prominence. Today, this painting hangs in the Museum of Modern Art at the Pompidou Center in Paris. While she was away, her husband had an unofficial falling out with Leon Trotsky. Diego Rivera was not the type to put up with such a pedantic and philosophically rigid ideologue. Rivera took the step of resigning from the Fourth International, the group some Trotskyite communists formed as an alternative to Stalinism. Eventually, Trotsky and his entourage would move out of the Casa Azul to another compound a few blocks away. At the request of his wife, Trotsky left behind the self-portrait given to him by Frida. The New York and Paris excursions of Frida seem to have fundamentally affected her relationship with Diego Rivera. Although the specific causes are unknown, Frida's affair with photographer Nicholas Muret possibly prompted Rivera's anger. The couple separated and then in November of 1939, officially divorced. Muret, whose iconic photographs of Frida are her most recognized images, and Kahlo engaged in a decade-long liaison that finally ended when Muret married his fourth wife. Diego may also have become aware of Frida's relationship with Trotsky and might have anticipated that a divorce would insulate them from any political or legal consequences resulting from the Russian exile's plight. Based on subsequent developments, Diego Rivera's divorce from his wife proved quite prescient. 
On May 24, 1940, an assassination team organized by Soviet secret police attempted to machine gun Trotsky and his family in the Russians' Koyokan home. Both Trotsky and his wife hid under their bed and remained unscathed, the only injury suffered by their grandson, who was wounded in the foot. Although the assassins were led by Mexican painter and communist David Alfaro Siqueiros, it was clear that such an effort would have only been orchestrated by much more sinister elements. Because of his split with Trotsky, Diego Rivera was suspected of being involved in the plot and decided to leave the country, heading for San Francisco. Frida remained behind in Mexico City. In the winter of 1939, she would be reintroduced to a Trotskyite sympathizer named Jacques Mornard. While in Paris, Mornard, who lived in the French capital at the time, claimed that he was moving to Mexico City and aggressively asked her to help secure him a home near hers and an introduction to Leon Trotsky. She refused, explaining that she and her husband had had a falling out with Trotsky and suggested he find a residence on his own. Mornard eventually made his way to Mexico, accompanied by his American girlfriend, Sylvia Agaloff, a trusted member of Trotsky's inner circle. It would take months, but Mornard, who routinely dropped Sylvia off at the Trotsky compound and did small favors for the entourage, eventually ingratiated himself into obtaining a personal meeting with the Soviet exile. Ostensibly, Trotsky was to review a political article that Mornard had written. In the late afternoon of August 20th, Leon Trotsky ushered the younger man into his study and began to read his work. Unfortunately for Trotsky, Jacques Mornard was actually Ramon Mercader, a specially recruited Stalinist assassin who took an ice axe from underneath his raincoat and plunged it into Trotsky's skull. Although the blow did not immediately kill Leon Trotsky, he would die of his injuries within 24 hours. Because Frida Kahlo knew Ramon Mercader and had even entertained him in her home, she was arrested and interrogated by Mexican police for two days. Upon her release, Frida decided to head to San Francisco herself, if only to regain her health and to avoid any potential political fallout. She spent a month in the hospital, chiefly to address her perpetually painful leg and foot. While there and afterward, she conducted an affair with a young German refugee, Heinz Bergruen, the couple not at all concerned with the lack of privacy of Frida's hospital bed. The possibility of discovery probably only added to the excitement. Despite this adventure, Frida decided to remarry Diego Rivera, an event that took place on December 8, 1940. Perhaps this process was influenced by Mexican law enforcement, determining that neither of the two artists had anything to do with the murder of Trotsky. Mercader's original story that he was angry because Trotsky did not approve of his impending marriage to Sylvia Agaloff would not be debunked for several years, and in fact his true identity as a Stalinist assassin would remain a secret until the 50s. Both Frida and Diego moved back in together at the Casa Azul. Rivera kept his studio at his other home, as well as a residence for any casual dalliances he decided to pursue. For the rest of her life, Frida's relationship with Diego Rivera would be practically maternal and their marriage symbolic. He would wander over to his studio in mid-morning with an assistant and leave her to work in her own studio. Returning for a simple lunch, Frida would also toss back a few shots of an alcoholic spirit, although due to his health, Diego would abstain. In the afternoon, Rivera would return to his studio and Frida might paint or amuse herself with various domestic chores or by merely relaxing in her garden. The household was reasonably pleasant until the death of Frida's father in April 1941 and the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union brought a pervasive gloom to Frida's outlook. 
these external influences combined with her perpetual poor health to induce a melancholy atmosphere to a friend, she wrote during this time period. I believe the war will continue in its apogee for the whole of this year that will just be born tomorrow, and we cannot hope for very happy days. I don't have much to tell you because I live the simplest life you can imagine. Most of the rest of the decade would be consumed by painting, teaching, and attempting to find solutions for the various ailments that plagued her, which included a chronically infected hand, her right foot, which was troublesome and restrictive, a deteriorating spinal column that was overwhelmingly painful, and even possible syphilis that was diagnosed in the early 40s. However, it would be during this time period that Frida would paint some of her most quintessential works. Most were nuanced self-portraits, festooned with animals, ornate costumes, or calligraphy, but others were visually surrealistic images that depicted her life's mental and physical ordeal, birth, life, and regeneration. Although she had several individuals who regularly requested and paid for her artwork, artistic recognition was still a struggle. The Two Fridas is a 1939 work painted during her brief divorce and among her most symbolic depictions of her own dual personality. On one side, the strong, compassionate, humorous devotee of Rivera. On the other side, a dark, lonely, needy, manipulative martyr who reveled in her role as victim. It would be purchased in 1947 by Mexico City's Museum of Modern Art, primarily because no one else was willing to buy it and the director of the museum knew she needed the money. Frida's degenerative spinal condition would begin to require surgery and a succession of casts designed to allow her mobility. She would fly to New York in May of 1946 for surgery that would fuse four vertebrae with bone and a metal rod. Returning to Mexico, she would be placed in a steel corset and remain bedridden for eight months. Ultimately, it would be determined by other doctors in Mexico that the operation was unsuccessful and additional surgery and bone grafts were required. Frida's refusal to be confined and even her possible deliberate self-sabotage of her wounds to attract attention from Diego Rivera and even punish him have also been suggested as additionally physically detrimental elements. Introduction of massive amounts of morphine, both during and after these surgeries, would also introduce an addiction that would continue for the rest of Frida's life. One of her paintings from this time period, The Little Deer, depicts her self-portrait attached to a four-legged animal, wounded by numerous blood-soaked arrows, a blatant summation of her mental and physical condition. The wounded deer would never make it out of the forest. By 1950, her right leg was in such bad shape that her toes began to turn black, indicating gangrene. Her daily existence, bedridden and confined in a corset of varying material, was improved only by various injected analgesics and required hospitalization. Although her condition and the extreme pain that accompanied it made painting difficult, a special easel was improvised so that she could still work while on her back. She would spend most of the year in the hospital, eventually returning home, only able to walk for short distances. Most of the time she was bedridden, painting only still lifes with inserted flags, words, and symbols meant to add meaning. Because she was consuming ever larger amounts of alcohol and painkillers, these paintings were frequently undisciplined and quickly executed. Diego Rivera was struggling financially, and many of these paintings were painted to help him raise money. Although Rivera would sleep under the same roof, by the early 50s they spent little time together. He had no interest in taking care of an invalid, even if it was his wife. He left Frida's house early in the morning and frequently returned well after dinner time. Friends and associates sensed that Frida was quite ill, 
They arranged her first Mexican solo exhibition in Mexico City in April of 1953 at the Galleria Arte Contemporaneo. Typically, told by her doctors that she should remain in bed, she demanded to be taken to the gallery for the opening, her bed transported for the occasion. She was carried into the gallery on a stretcher and placed on her four-poster for the duration of the event. Such bravado could not counteract the seriousness of her condition. In August of 1953, her right leg was amputated at the knee due to spreading gangrene. Already depressed, she unsuccessfully attempted suicide by drug overdose upon hearing of another of Rivera's affairs, perhaps hoping that this would prompt more attention. The amputation of Frida's leg seemed to send her into a downward spiral of anxiety and irrational behavior. She would have wild mood swings. At times, she would speak maternally to Diego Rivera as if he were her child. At other times, she would lash out at him verbally or even throw objects like bottles at him, always immediately repentant. Rivera responded with even longer absences, unable to cope with the worsening and unstable condition of his wife. Her artistic output at this point was minimal, but she still managed a few paintings, mostly with allusions to Marx and Stalin, perhaps an attempt to underline her own political identity. A longtime nurse described her condition in the early months of 1954. I had seen her in many crises in her life, in most of them I helped her, but then Frida had both legs and I knew that without the leg, it was impossible to help her anymore. Frida left her bed on one more occasion, literally a revolutionary act of protest against the overthrow of Guatemala's president, Jacobo Arbenz, by a CIA-backed military junta. On July 2, 1954, she was a prominent member of a group of Mexico City demonstrators, pushed in her wheelchair by Rivera at the head of a lengthy procession of socially and politically prominent individuals that numbered over 10,000 people. It was the last time she would be seen in public. Frida Kahlo celebrated her 47th and last birthday on July 6, 1954. Drawings and notations in her diary indicate that however it would arrive, she knew the end was near. She would die sometime in the early morning of July 13th from what a doctor officially noted as a pulmonary embolism. Racked by pneumonia, in constant and excessive pain only dulled by massive amounts of opiates, this certainly would not be a far-fetched prognosis. However, on the evening before her death, she insisted on giving Diego Rivera an anniversary present, despite the fact that their anniversary was a month away. Later, her nurse would claim that Frida intentionally exceeded the number of painkillers she was supposed to take. Her final diary entry was both ominous and revelatory. I hope the exit is joyful and I hope never to come back. Frida Kahlo would lie in state in the Palacio de Bellas Artes, her coffin draped with a communist flag. Eventually, led by Diego Rivera, 500 mourners followed Frida's coffin conveyed by a hearse to the crematorium and cemetery known as the Panteón Civil de Dolores. After a brief ceremony, the mourners initially sang political songs like the Internacional and the National Anthem, followed by more melancholy Mexican folk songs, one, La Barca de Oro, the ship of gold, was especially appropriate. I'm leaving you now. This is goodbye. Farewell, my love. Goodbye forever. You'll never see me again, nor hear my songs. But the seas will overflow with my tears. Goodbye, my love. Goodbye. Frida Kahlo was then cremated, 
Her ashes ultimately gathered by Diego Rivera into a red cloth that was placed in a cedar box. Today, these ashes are on display in a pre-Columbian urn on the grounds of La Casa Azul, now a national museum containing many of Frida and Diego Rivera's artworks, her wheelchair and her four-poster bed, appropriately adorned with one of her decorated plaster corsets and her life mask. In his autobiography, Diego Rivera would state, July 13, 1954, was the most tragic day of my life. I had lost my beloved Frida forever. Too late now, I realized that the most wonderful part of my life had been my love for Frida. Typically, within a year, Rivera would marry Emma Hurtado, his art dealer. He would die of a heart attack exacerbated by cancer on November 24, 1957, age 70. Rivera probably would not have anticipated that within a few decades, his wife's fame and artistic reputation would begin to eclipse his own legacy. Frida Kahlo's tragic life of physical suffering, romantic betrayal, her unique personality, and remarkable creativity made her evolving popular culture prominence inevitable. A diary entry written only months before her death aptly summarizes her lifelong struggle from an early age and her immortality. I have achieved a lot. I will be able to walk. I will be able to paint. I love Diego more than I love myself. My will is great. My will remains. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Frida Kahlo. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Frida, a biography of Frida Kahlo by Hayden Herrera and Frida Kahlo, the brush of anguish by Martha Zamora. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.